0: Pray with me if you would please. We're gonna get quiet and let our hearts be still and then let the Lord speak to us. All right, let's get quiet and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of spending another evening with you as a family. Seeking your guidance, your clarity, your leading. And I do pray, Lord, that you would tonight minister. We've not come to a drive-through blessing But rather, God, we've come to sit with You and be with You and hear from You and draw near to You. And we expect to find You in Your Word. We expect You to lead us, to define our calling better, to strengthen what is weak, to shore up what is sagging in our faith. Please now, minister, immerse me in your Holy Spirit, God, that I would disappear and you would be seen. And tonight come upon me in such a way that it would be very clear and evident your presence here. I commit this night to you, every moment of it. Pray you would be glorified. Redeem every second, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Having said that, if some, many people are familiar with the Book of Judges, I mean, a very, to be honest, one of the darkest times in Israel history, uh, where it's basically a free for all. We read there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was mayhem. It was pandemonium. People were just acting crazy, and they were making up their own rules, and everyone had their own idea of what was right and wrong. Sounds a lot like where we're at today. And we see, of course, some of those great heroes, Gideon, Jephthah, uh, Samson, Deborah. We see all these people raise up from this book. And obviously, what makes them such a hero, to be honest, is how stark in contrast they are to the society they're in. If the society was generally really, really nice and they rose up a little bit, it wouldn't be as clear. It's a very, very dark, dismal, empty, hopeless place for which one arises to help lead a nation into their freedom. We get that. We had Moses in the wilderness prior, leading us in the wilderness, watching a generation die in their complaining, and their lack of faith. Joshua is the one who will take them over. In essence, Moses gets them out of Egypt. Joshua gets them into the promised land. It's the book of Joshua, really, that hints at what does it take. I mean, many of us know in our own lives, we've lived a life a lot similar to the book of Judges, where what happens is we get blessed by God. We forget about the blesser for the blessing, and then we turn our back on God. And ultimately, from that, we find ourselves in bondage again. We cry out to God. And he delivers us and the whole thing starts all over again. And our life is basically this weird pendulum of being really blessed by God and then really crying out to God because of how stupid we've been by forgetting that God was the one who gave us the blessings. And and if that's your life, I, I recognize that the same way that we see in the book of Judges, what it takes to see that series end was what they said. There was no king in Israel. Is that what it takes is the proper king to take the proper throne. Jesus being your savior alone will give you a judge's life. But Jesus being your Lord, sitting on the throne that he deserves, will end, we'll end that time and actually put you in a place of a greater, where, where God intended. But if you were there, you might wonder how you got there. The book of Judges kind of shows us that. It shows us really shining moments, great victories, great battles. But it also shows us great, well, to be honest, it shows us great failure. It shows us what happens in a life that starts to compromise and how that compromise leads us then into a life of really just spinning around in circles. We used to say in America, doing donuts. That's where you sort of turn your wheel on your car really hard and then you gas it so the car just spins around in circles. Well, that's kind of maybe you feel like that's your life. Like right now you feel kind of trapped. It's going nowhere. It's just spinning around in circles. And the faster you go, the more dizzy you get because you're still not getting anywhere. Well, there's a divine aspect to that, and there might just be that you just need to settle in in the Lord. But understand, let me fill you in on where we're at to this point, and we'll go through chapter 11 verse by verse in this. But understand, this is where we've been. In the book of Joshua, what happens is, as they cross or prepare to cross over into the promised land, and the promised land is not heaven. We're aware of that because if the promised land is heaven, why in the world are all these battles taking place? But I would dare to say the promised land would be the abundant life Jesus called us to. That life abundant, where there aren't short, we aren't short of battles, but we are guaranteed victory in every one of them. And we read that, that Jesus said that He had come not just to give us life, but to give us life abundant, more abundant, literally above and beyond what we can contain. And we would love that kind of life. Well, that life isn't without battles, but let's face it, even if you didn't live an abundant life in Christ, you're still gonna face battles. You're gonna have them either way. What the abundant life shows us is that we're victorious. How would we know we're victorious if there weren't challenges? So Joshua takes them over the promised land. And as he does, there are things that are going to it's going to be a very radically different place. Now, all of a sudden, the man is going to cease. They're not going to get need to get water from a rock. That pillar of fire by night or, or cloud by day is going to be gone. All of those very clear and obvious things that we once just recognized God's presence. And those things aren't going to be there anymore. And maybe in the early portion of your walk where you said yes to God, it just seemed like God was tangible at everything you did. He showed up. His face was in your pancake. You know, it didn't matter what it was. You turn on TV and every guy had a beard and he wasn't a terrorist or whatever. And, you know, just you saw Jesus and everything. Well, we still should. But it just seemed like he was so tangible. And then we get to this point where we start living this abundant life in Christ. And we're like, we don't see some of the tangible stuff we used to. And that's okay. Because what becomes what we have to do is segue out of looking for it on the outside and being confident in it on the inside. Just like Jesus, when he ascended, he practiced, if you will, showing up. I love that about the book of Acts. You know, before he ascended, in between the time of his resurrection and his ascension, it just seemed like you never knew if Jesus was just going to show up at any given moment. Now, that kind of helps you live your life a little more accordingly. But, I mean, you kind of always kind of keenly aware that he was there. But if you were Jesus, wouldn't you just do it for fun? You're like, hey, just to see how many people you could scare and, you know, those kind of things. Especially when you're talking about big fishermen and just to see if they cuss one more time and go, hey, you're supposed to not be doing that. I mean, the things you could do, pop is, you know, just practice popping in and out of walls, you know, the things he could do now. But the reason I say that is Jesus was helping us practice living the presence of Jesus without seeing him. So when he does ascend, we could still be confident he's there, even if we can't see him. And in that same way, we kind of see that, really, as they transition into this place of the promised land. They don't see that pillar like they used to. They don't see the manna like they used to. They're just going to have to walk by faith. And so what they do is they go and they make their way. I mean, as God parts the, the Jordan... And, of course, there's stone monuments everywhere. They take stones out of the Jordan to make a monument. Stones, they they take and put it into the Jordan as a monument. The ones they take out, they put in their camp, and the camp is in a place called Gilgal. Gilgal means rolling away, and I won't develop that because of what happens primarily there. But it's the place of consecration. It's a place where the second generation was circumcised. And understand, from that point on, there will be a pattern for everything we'll see in the rest of of this book. And it is fundamental that they are in proper order and they are all maintained. C stands for consecrate, and then we use the acronym CSI, like the TV show. C stands for consecrate, and the idea is make sure your heart is right before God. S is for seek, as in seek the Lord. And then I is to initiate. Whatever it is that God says, do it. And what we find is, through the rest of the book, it's either great victory because they do that, or there's some form of failure because they don't. First was Jericho and with Jericho, they consecrated all the men were, that were uncircumcised, became circumcised. They consecrated themselves to the Lord. Then they saw it and the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Joshua and told him the game plan, a very weird game plan. We can all agree. They had to march around the city, you know, not say anything. You know, the horn blowers blew their horn And that happened for seven days. On the seventh day, they did it seven times, and then the walls were just supposed to fall down flat. But weird as it is, they still had to initiate this crazy scheme that God came up with. They did, and it worked out perfectly, and they were perfectly victorious. They consecrated, they sought, and they initiated. But problem was, is that someone, though God said don't touch any of the spoil of Jericho, someone did anyways. And because someone did anyways, a guy named Achan or Achan, which means troublemaker. You should have saw it coming, I guess, with a kid with that name. Who names their kid that? And with that, he steals some gold, some silver, and a Babylonian garment. Now, guess what happens? The camp is not consecrated. Remember, consecrate, seek, initiate. Because the camp is not consecrated, and they don't even go back to Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal is the place of consecration. We'll see that when we get to the book of Samuel's, Where Saul was supposed to, after being declared king, was supposed to go and make his way immediately over to Gilgal. It's the place of consecration. What we find with Saul in the Old Testament is he's a person with a great calling, but no consecration. It will be symptomatic for his whole life. Now, hear me on this. So they go and they get the second town instead of going back to Ai and just sort of checking everything to make sure they're reconsecrated. No, they don't. They go straight at Ai because it seems like a little and insignificant place and they lose. The only battle that we see casualties of is Israeli casualties throughout the book of Joshua. Then with that, they have to go in and now he's seeking, but there's a problem seeking step two. So God goes, oh, whoa, 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 let's not get to step two, let's get back to step one. Your camp's unconsecrated. Someone is hiding something in their tent, and because they're hiding it in the tent, it deconsecrates the whole camp. You need to get rid of that guy. You need to kick that person out, and you need to deal with what they've done, and you need to deal with it in a very harsh and a very clear way that God don't put up with it. And everybody loves Joshua when he's winning their battles. Nobody loves Joshua when he's disciplining well, he should have saw that coming. That's what happened with Moses. We don't see any great fights there, but we see his fear. So, the Ahan, Achan is taken out and he lives up to his name. He is now Achan. And they stone him to death. Now the camp is consecrated and now they seek. Consecration, seeking, initiating. They consecrated, so they saw it. And God says, this is the way you do it. Ambush. So, with ambush, they went and then they initiated So they consecrated. The lack of consecration caused them to lose with Ai. They re-consecrated. The good news is you could go and take the test over. They consecrated. They sought and initiated. And again, they were victorious. Then the next thing you see is a town called Gibeon. Gibeon are people they were supposed to fight against and destroy. But Gibeon lies to them. They were in Gilgal, so they were consecrating. But now as they come, they come with a real fancy talk. They come with old shoes, old water sacks. They come with old food. And they say, we come from a very distant place and we want to talk peace. But Israel didn't do something. Which of the three things did they not do? Seek. They did not seek the Lord. And that's exactly what it says. But they did not seek the Lord on this matter. As a result of that, they made an unright Covenant with those people. As a result of that, they will be in essence of pain from this point forward. They will be a challenge. Consecrate, seek, initiate. Do you get that? We have seen we have now seen what happens when you fail to consecrate. We have now seen what happens when you fail to seek. You get into improper allegiances. And we see this happen a lot. You know, she says that the most important thing is that he's a godly man, but this guy just looks way too cute with a tight shirt on. And all of a sudden, those I'm sure he prays. I'm sure he's a godly man because no guy could look like that and not be godly. It's amazing what happens when you stop seeking. And your friends will help you by saying, no, 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 no. I candy, perhaps. You can walk around. Don't let him talk. Don't, you know. But in the end of it all, this is not your guy. Do not be unequally yoked. And so she does what a lot of people do, flirt to convert. I know what I'll do. I'll bring a couple Christian brothers over. They all, Lucas, PT, Daniel, these guys, that guy's going to get saved. Bruno, I heard Bruno preach the gospel. You know, you need to be Bruno. And if he just, and if the moment he says yes, then he's boyfriend material. No, he's not. He needs to figure out his first love before he wants to make you one. And we don't see. And we convince ourselves we don't need to seek. So you're consecrated in the boat until the storm comes, because you're there with Jesus. You're consecrated. But when the boat comes oh, I'm sorry when the boat comes when the storm comes, you don't contact Jesus till you think you're going to die, and by that point you ask him, "Don't you care? We're drowning." Sounds like you should have sought a little earlier. Sounds like I should have sought a little earlier. Then I would have been able to initiate. And you know what I would have initiated? Being still. Well, he goes and takes care of it. So then we are in the last chapter, chapter 10. There are now people who have made themselves enemies of Gibeon, the people they've made an allegiance with. And they've made themselves enemies of Gibeon because they are now, Gibeon is now in allegiance with Israel. Israel is called to defend them. And God says this in 10.8. We can look at it back with me. Don't fear them. For I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man shall stand before you. That's Adedin Zedek. That's Roham, That's Piram. Yafia, Devir, kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmuth, Yachish, and Eglon. And that, what happens is, Joshua went into the center of Israel. That was those three. Jericho, Ai, in Gibeon, if you will, and then they went and took on the entire south is what it felt like as these kings gathered together. And God brought a total victory. They were consecrated. They sought the Lord. God spoke to them and they initiated God's plan. That's the way it works. You say, okay, so I've seen what happens. Can you tell me those three things again? C stands for? Consecrate. Excellent. S stands for? Seek. I stands for? Initiate. Now, now, We've seen what happens when you fail to consecrate, total defeat. We see what happens when you fail to seek unhealthy allegiance. Now, sadly enough, by the end of this book, we are going to see the rest, almost the rest of it within a few chapters, be what happens when the people fail to initiate. And that becomes the problem. And let me ask you, in your own life, as I'm asking that in my own life, what areas am my weakest in? Am I just seeking to become more like the church or am I really seeking to become more like Jesus? Am I cold with whatever the status quo is or am I really serious about really wanting to become more like Jesus? Because I know this, becoming more like you will cost me less. If I'm just going to be honest. Becoming more like Jesus will cost me everything. Everything is going to get mucked with. Everything is going to be restructured. Lots of things will be cut off and I won't see him again. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to take that kind of stand? I'd like to say yes. And I ask, well, well, what about seeking? Am I quick to knee-jerk respond? Something looks good, sounds good, smells good, or whatever, I should just jump on it? Or am I really seeking the Lord? Because if when I hear Him, I have peace. Because have you learned by this point, especially for whatever reason here in this city, no matter what decision you make, someone's going to question it or something's going to happen to make you question it. Even the simplest of decisions. Even decisions you know are right. And you could say, well, I know it's right. But if you hear it from the Lord and you're confident the Lord said it, there is a greater confidence in those moments. When you say, well, You know, pardon me for bringing it to my own life, but obviously I have to live this out too. That's the joy of this. You know, it's like when we talk about the fights and the battles we have to go through just to stay here and the money that is to be raised and all that stuff. And you realize, I never question whether it's worth it because I know you're worth it. The issue is just making sure that the Lord doesn't say go. And with that, we have the privilege of saying, all right, well then let's do what's necessary. And people will say, you know, we've got people telling us how, how crazy we are, just like people are telling you how crazy you are. Do you realize how much money you've spent? Don't even try to convert it to dollars. Do you realize how silly you're being? You know, people need churches in America too. I mean, the kind of stuff that people that mean well say that is actually stupid. You know, I'm saying this because I love you. Well, if you really love me, say nothing. Pray for me. Well, I'm not the praying type. Well, that should tell you something. And am I the kind of person where I'm really not willing to seek? Because let's face it, some things just seem good until we're there. And we're like, well, I it just, I've always kind of leaned towards this. I've always, I just always figured I'd be there someday. I always kind of figured this was what it was going to be. It just seems right. But, but hearing from the Lord is a very different thing than just what it seems. Because we're aware of the fact not everything, most things are not what they seem. Am I weak in my seeking? Or am I weak in my initiating? Am I weak in the areas where I know stuff I should be doing, but I'm not doing it? Or I know I should stop doing it, but I am still doing it? And I'm not even asking for help. I'm not calling in help. I'm just basically saying, well, it'll, it'll happen in its day. If we're honest with ourselves, the church in mass, the way that the world views the church, sees them guilty of all three. Wouldn't you agree? We don't look much different from the world. Not consecrated. We don't like people that are really seeking God's things. We're actually taking surveys and drawing our information from business and secular media sources. And we're certainly not seeking to initiate God's plan, because if we were, we'd be out sharing the gospel, discipling people and sending them out to do that again. Well, now that we're aware of what we're looking at, Joshua has gone through the center. The kings of the south have rallied up and now been defeated. So you kind of guess where we're looking at next. We're looking at the north. So I want you to read along in your Bibles because I'm going to ask uh, Bruno if he would just to shoot up maps. Just to shoot up a map so that you can kind of try to find those places if that makes sense. On the map, just to kind of make it a little easier. So look at it with me. Chapter 11, verse 1. I know it seems a very lengthy introduction but it only makes sense for where we're at. It came to pass when Yabin, king of Hatzor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab. Now doesn't that sound like somebody from like Georgia? Jobab. Anyway. Jovav, actually, king of Madon, the king of to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Achshav, and to the kings who were of the north, in the mountains, in the plains, the south of Chinorot, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and into the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. Those are life verses, I'm sure, for all of you. Now, I'm going to try to give you a challenge here. Read it carefully. It's only three verses. Count how many people, not place names, but people are mentioned by name. Go. If you're new to all this, you're okay to guess. We all make, you know... The good news is you could be brave enough to be the first person to come up with an answer. Okay, anyone have a guess? By name, how many do you come up with for? Who else has something? You have two. What do you have? Two. The answer is two. Excellent. But I am imagining somebody was just seeing double. That's all. Okay. The two names are Yavin and Yovav. Do you see those? Yavin, the king of Hatzor, and he's sent to Yovav, the king of Madon. Then it says, and these other kings, the king of Jimnon, the king of Akshav, so forth. Okay. By name, how many place names do you come up with? studying your Bibles. It's awesome. <laughs> Some people are afraid to say now. Any guesses? Nine. What do you think? Nine. Who else has something? Yeah. What's that? Eight. Who said eight? Yeah, we said eight. What do you say? Eight. Claudius says eight. Notice I mentioned the names of the people who are right. Eight is right. Hatsor. Madon, Shimran, Achshaf, Chinarat, Dor, Hermon, and Mizbah. There's like all these other people's names and so forth that are in there. So what's the big deal? Well, why did God even mention two kings' names? I mean, He didn't have to. He could have just said, "When the king of Hatsor heard these things, he sent to the king of Madon and these other kings." So why didn't He mention them by name? Well, actually, I actually find it interesting because of their names, as you might guess, this is where I'm going to go. What they mean. Well, the first guy's name is yah Yah would be short for what? Yahweh. Yah means God. Strange as that is. Okay, what about the second part? Vin, like Mr. Bean. Bean is the word that is used of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 6. When God says, My Spirit will no longer strive with man forever. Literally means to beg or plead or contend. His name means God pleads for or God begs for. That's an interesting name. Well, I find that interesting. God would point out his name. But then there's a second guy. The second guy is that Jobab guy. Remember that? Yevav. Jovav means... He who cries out, or howler. I think interesting. I put those two guys' names together, and this is what I get. I get God cries out for, or I should say, God contends for, or pleads for, or begs for, he who cries out. I think that's interesting. God chose those two names to put out, nobody else's. Hmm. Then I look at these place names. And again, forgive me if I kind of get all hocus pocusy on you here. We're going to get to the gist of it in just a moment. I'm just setting things up. I have this place called Chatzor. Chatzor, by the way, means castle or enclosed in, like trapped inside. Madon means strife. Shimron means the guard or who guards. Then this is one of my favorite names. Who names their kid this? Akshaf literally means I shall be or we shall be bewitched. We will be fooled. We will be bewitched. And then we have the plains of Hinorot. Hinorot, I'll explain in just a moment. And Dor, which means this generation. And then we find these places in the end a sanctuary at the watchtower. Mispah means watchtower. I look at that and I think, wait a minute. It says, Those that are closed in or trapped in strife shall be bewitched, guarded and being bewitched. This generation. I look at this and I start to look and go, hmm. Because that's exactly what's going to happen to the nation Israel, right there. What's interesting is that word chinnereth, because a chinnereth is a harp. It's an instrument, the most intimate instrument that was during its day. And I find it interesting because even today, one of the places where I find, even in God's people, where they're most easiest led astray is in the time when the harps are happening, when the worship is happening, and people come up with some of the craziest things and nobody even cares. They're looking for angel feathers and holy sweat and divine oil to fall from the sky and gold fillings and whatever else simply because the music's good and they're just enjoying themselves. It's just a dangerous place. And a whole generation we will find here will be led astray by very similar things. So let me give you a little bit of geography and then we'll get through our text. If we look at this, this is the Sea of Galilee. This right here is also called the Sea of Chinaret. Chinaret because it is the shape of a chinara which is the Hebrew word for harp. It is the shape of a harp. And that's, we call it that. And by the way, those of you who've been there, we know it is an intimate place. It is the place where you get up before the sun rises and you can hear the wind under a mud duck as it flies by. It's so beautiful and peaceful. Well, with that in mind, just above it is this little... We'll see, now my eyes are bad. There it is right there. Do you see that little cutie up there? It's basically kind of like the little brother of this. That, in our day, or I should say about 100 years ago, was called the Hula Lake. The problem was, the Hula Lake wasn't very, very deep, is where this, by the way, is ridiculously deep. Now, because it wasn't very deep, it became a hotbed for a cholera, malaria, typhoid. So they actually drained it out, but they couldn't just drain. How do you drain out a lake? So what they did, brilliant people. These are people who gave their life for the nation Israel. They brought in a particular tree from Australia. Does anyone know what tree they brought in? Eucalyptus. So you know why you bring in the eucalyptus? Not so you can smell really good. Because they're really thirsty. And they planted them around the Hula Lake. And as they planted them around the Hula Lake, it drained the lake. And when they drained the lake, they drained the cholera, and they drained the typhoid, and they drained the malaria. It was gone. But the people who planted them died of those things to do so. Today, that land is farmland. And it's some of the richest farmland you have in all of the world right now. Now, I want you to look at a couple of things. Can you see this Madon right here? you? Yeah, sorry. Am I in any, I'm probably in some of you. I'll try to do this. I'm just trying to give you some places. Madon, Shimram, Kinneret, Chatzor, Kadesh, Merom, Achshav. Sidon is this way. And it is to this day. Hermon, still Hermon, By the way, tallest mountain in the air, You can actually ski from there. Uh, and so the wind down here is Dor. And the reason I say that is this area, which we would call Galilee to this day, Galil, still has many of these same places. Although, Kinvet today, up here you're going to look at, right here would be Tiberias, up here would be Capernaum. Give you an idea where Jesus, of course, will set his headquarters. Now, with all that in mind, here's the simplest point of it. These guys all in the north here, all of these guys are gathering together now to fight Joshua. Because they kind of figured, boy, Joshua was undefeated at this point, and so let's gather together and let's take him down ourselves. Now, it tells us, by the way, that they gathered in behind the land of Mizpah. Mizpah is kind of important. Because Mizpah, has anyone ever seen these things? They call them they, they Mizpahs to this day. It's actually kind of a funny thing. And it's like boyfriend and girlfriend in like third grade. You know, like when you're kind of young, late, you know, you know, sort of secondary or primary school. You get these things and it breaks in half and it says, The Lord watch over you and me while we are apart. Have you ever seen these? It's really cute. And you get half and you give, here we are this, I'll wear the other half. So yours says, the apart kind of thing. You know, and you kind of do that. Well, the, the interesting thing is the context of that. Because it is, it sounds like a lovely verse. And the verse, by the way, from what it's worth is Genesis 31:49, And it says, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Sounds really sweet, doesn't it? But the context was that Jacob had been ripped off enough by his father-in-law Laban. And they stand there together and they're like, I'm drawing a line. You don't come past. I won't go past. And the Lord watch you while we're apart. And the idea of it was like, hey, if you, you still try to do something against me, God's going to get you. It's a little bit different than the romantic here, have half of my pendant thing. And I just think that's an interesting place where all of this is happening. So verse five or verse four, I'm sorry. So they went out. They and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when these kings had met together, they came and camped together in the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Can you guys find Merom? You see it anywhere? Right there, can you see that? Merom is the land that butts into this little lake. I remind you, the hula. Merom is staying. Now, first of Merom means high place. Now, they gathered together, and it tells us a seashore and multitude. Now, there are several historians who write about this. One who, of course, the most familiar quoted is the guy named Josephus. Claudius Josephus. Flavius Josephus. Josephus actually tells us, whether he's two or not, but he tells us that there were 300,000 foot soldiers in this battle against Israel. 300,000. If you will, that is about a third of a million people, plus 20,000 chariots. Now, understand, a chariot in those days would be the same today as a tank today. So, imagine, if you will, somebody came at England, and they came with an army of 300,000 men today. And we're talking England now. And, you know, let's face it, there were less people that were Israeli than there were that are in. Matter of fact, if we took all of the Israelis from this period of time, it wouldn't be but 20% of the people that live in London, in the greater metropolitan London. that gives us an idea where we're at. So there's not an awful lot of people. But let's just say that London, we multiply them by five with us, but we take London, and it's surrounded by 300,000 soldiers and 10,000 tanks, or 20,000 tanks and 10,000 tanks and 20,000 horse, or horsemen. So what would that be? Those would be those guys on the pickup trucks with those like guns. You ever see those like the ISIS and all they kind of have where they're kind of riding in the back. Or maybe you watch those movies where there's always like one guy that has one of these in every movie. And it's like sort of a pickup truck modified and the guys in the back. going. Well, imagine you've got, I don't know, 20,000 of those. You really think London stands a chance? 300,000 soldiers. 20,000 tanks or 10,000 tanks, 20,000 guys on those back of those pickups with those? And then slice London in a fifth, and that's what we're dealing with here. Would you be afraid? You go, wow, this is probably the biggest battle we've ever had. We can't even count the people we're fighting now. And they met together. It says in verse 5, they met together, they camped together in the waters of Merrim to fight against Israel. But... Verse six. Do you know where Israel is at this moment? They're in Gilgal. They are consecrated and they're seeking the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before you. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Don't miss this. God says you got 24 hours and that innumerable army will be all gone. Do you believe him? Because there is nothing that makes sense about it except this, God. That's it. God's the only answer here. Have you learned yet that God doesn't have a problem letting the enemy be really big and bad so that when God takes him down, only he can get the credit? You know, we see things and they get bigger and they get worse and they get bigger. And we're like, God, why aren't you stepping in? God, why God, why aren't you stepping in? Truth be told, because if any God had stepped in any earlier, we would have thought we did it when we look back at it. But when those moments happen where it really does seem great and I'm like so out of control and man, I'm a goner. I am perishing. If you don't do something now, I'm a dead man. And God says, good. Now that we're in agreement, let me step in and do something. He says, but when I do, those tanks aren't yours. Don't because you know what would happen if they had taken the horses and the chariots? Do you know what happened? They would have relied on the horses and chariots. It's exactly what Deuteronomy 18 said. When you get a king, don't let him gather these things because if he gathers these things, you're in trouble. He'll turn his back on me. So Joshua, no. They've consecrated. They've sought. So what's the next thing to do? Initiate. Let's get this thing happening. So Joshua and all the people of war came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. Now interesting, now they've made their way up to, to uh, Mizpah, and understand this is a five-day march. I do think that's beautiful. They're going to march for five days to take on a third of a million people and their tanks and their machine gun pickup truck things. And they're going to do all of that after a five day march. That's a guy who was ready to initiate. How about you? And I ask myself, is there a go for it in my spirit? When God says, let's do this. And I'm like, yeah, let's do this. But man, I remember playing sports when I had a coach and it was like, man, if I was ever on the bench, I did not want to be. I don't care, man. I'd rather I'd rather die on the field tired than sit and let somebody else score that last goal. Then I was like, I was always like, come on, man, put me in, put me in. I'm fine. I'm fine. They're like, your head fall off. I don't care. I'll play well without my head. You know, that kind of thing? I can play with one arm. Why am I not like that with the Lord? with the greatest coach, with the greatest match, for the greatest victory of all time. I want to be like, come on, coach, come on. And he's like, how about I put you in? And you're like, really? Well, okay. Really? I want to be like Joshua. Joshua's like, okay, coach, you said go, let's go. So they went and they attacked him. Now, I imagine they were a little surprised. They were five days away. Now, all of a sudden, here they are. They show up there. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here they come, attacking the 300,000 of them. And it says in verse 8, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon. Can you find that on there? The brook Mishrafut, which, by the way, is the place of the glass smelters, and the place of Mizpah eastward. So they're going this way. They're heading up this way. See their Sidon right there? Greater Sidon. So they're heading up today to the era of Tyre Sidon. To this day, it's still called that. This is none of them live, none of them remaining. Verse 9, Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses, that's you cut the back, tendon back here, kind of where your, ham, where your Achilles is, kind of just north of it. And the idea of it that the horses, in essence, then can't be used. And burn their chariots with fire. The only thing left to do with them at that point is take them to Sicily and, and barbecue them. Anyways, Joshua turned back at the time and he took Hatzor. And he struck its king with a sword, and Chatzor had formerly been the head of those kingdoms. It was actually larger than the size of London, the only of these cities that was. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was left none of them breathing. Then he burned Chatzor to fire. So the cities of those kings and the kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as the cities that stood on the mounds, Israel burned none of those except Chetzor, which Joshua burned. What's he going to do? He's going to ultimately inhabit them as God promised. So what does he take in? The place that traps. Because that's the one city. Remember that enclosed in, trapped in strife? That trapped in is the place that he goes and takes. He frees those that are trapped in. And all the spoil of the cities and their livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. They struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them and left none breathing. And the Lord had commanded, as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone that the Lord had commanded him. When God tells you victory, how far do you want to go with this? When God says total victory, is partial victory still good enough for you? Is it good enough for me? Not for Joshua. That's why he wanted the sun to stand still in the last chapter. When God says, I want to give you victory, I'd say, let's go. Let's get total victory. Let's not just win, let's annihilate. Thus, Joshua took all the land, the mountain country, and all the south, the land of Goshen, the, and the lowland, and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Marhalach to the ascent of Sir, even as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them down, and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, and all others they took in battle. It was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that they might utterly destroy them and that they may receive no mercy but that He might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now before we close this, we are very near to doing so. This, of course, becomes our topic. God hardened it. Actually, it just said it was of the Lord to do this. What does it mean for God to harden a heart? Because I know that God does harden hearts, because He hardened Pharaohs. The word that is used here is the word chazak. Could you say chazak? Try that. Come on, give it to me, good, strong Hebrew. Chazak. Nice. Chazak. Chazak means to strengthen. For instance, in Second Chronicles eleven eleven, for. Strongholds were fortified. And Isaiah 41, when God jokes about an idol, he says that that idol has to be cut, it needs to be carved, it needs to be covered in gold and silver so you can make your idol pretty, and then it needs to be fastened to something with nails so it doesn't fall over. The word "fastened" is kathak. In Second Chronicles 32:5, we find the king; he strengthened himself. And Haggai, when Haggai is speaking and prophesying to Zerubbabel about the building of the city in 2.4, he says, be strong, O Zerubbabel. And perhaps you're familiar with that, of course, from Joshua 1.6, when God says, be strong and of good courage. And that is the word chazak. So how does that work here? And let me tell you what it doesn't mean. What we never find in Scripture is God changing a person's heart. What, you, what we find in regards to that is like changing their mind. What God does is he strengthens the resolve of it. I've heard it said, if you change your mind, God will change your heart. But you've already changed your mind. God does not change your mind. That's the choice you have to make because that's what it means to repent. So when Pharaoh, it wasn't like Pharaoh's was like, I want to be really nice to everybody. And then God twisted him and he became dark. Wouldn't it be weird for God to do that? But that's what some people say. What God does do as he strengthens the resolve of someone, often, by the way, he'll even strengthen your resolve. So you'll finally conclude that it's not like it. You shouldn't do it. So this is the way it is. You're in a bad relationship and you're not sure if you should come or go. Maybe I'll still stick it out for a little while. But every time you are, it really changes you for the worse. And you go near it and it gets worse and you go near it and it gets worse. And then you're like, well, I don't know. I'm going to kind of play around with both. Maybe I'll live forever in this limbo. And all of a sudden you get this conviction. I'm going to really dive into this relationship and try, really try. And then you realize you get totally worked. You go, well, why would that happen? Because now you finally hate it and you'll have the strength to walk away. God really wants us to hate our sin. And I remind you back in Genesis 15, God made really clear to Abraham that he was going to wait until the hardness of these people was already to its extent. There comes a part where a person gets so convinced that they don't want God that they will never turn around. Oh, don't let that be the case for any of us. And what happens often is you just play with both sides. You play with both sides long enough you think you're safe when you're not. And then you harden your own heart to that. What God did in Pharaoh's case is he strengthens Pharaoh's resolve so that Moses, through God, or God through Moses could take down every one of their gods I mean, what if Pharaoh just said, okay, you guys can go after the second one. Well, then there would be other gods people would have still worshipped. But because Pharaoh's resolve was strengthened, all of the gods that people worshipped in Egypt were taken down so that when Israel left, they realized none of those gods were worth worshipping. That's what God does. God doesn't strengthen or harden a person's heart so they won't receive him. God hardens a person's heart so that they can finally make the choice to receive him. And if they will not ever say yes to him, he could strengthen the resolve to become a warning so that other people will receive him. It's that simple. And here what we read is it was of the Lord to strengthen their resolve because they had already completely declared war against God. They were not going to repent and God knows the heart. So he strengthened it so that he could give the victory that was necessary. I've learned this from coaching. If you can get the other team crazy mental mad at you, they'll make all kinds of mistakes. I watch it happen all the time in sports. When I watch how they rile up another team and get them crazy, they get wide-eyed, red-eyed, bull, crazy. And what happens is when they get like that, they can't even think anymore. Have you ever been there? You're so mad you can't even think? Could you imagine happening? And it's like you learn that in fighting. It's like if you get that person that mad, they're going to hurt themselves. So understand in this, it isn't like God wanted to destroy these people because we read that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. But if they're going to be destroyed, he's going to at least make sure they take down as least amount of people as possible with them. That's the part. And one of the ways he'll do that is he'll strengthen a person's resolve so that it can become really clear how dangerous and and scary those people really are. We just have to be willing to look. Speaking of which, let's close this up. In verse 21, it says, Then Joshua came and cut off the Anakim. Perhaps you're familiar with them from Star Wars. Maybe you're not. Anakim, by the way, means long-necked. Eam is plural, so it's long-necked. Of the mountains of Hebron, the and Nav, Judah Israel, the mountains, the mountains of Judah, the mountains of Israel, and they utterly destroyed their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel, They only remained in Gaza, in Gath, and then Ashdod. Why is that important? Because the anakim have already been really clear to us. As a matter of fact, when Moses is telling the story of Israel's failure, remember the first time they went, looked at the promised land, but said, heck no, we won't go? When Moses reviews that in Deuteronomy 1, he says this in verse 28 as he's speaking about them. They say, how can we go up there? Our brethren have discouraged discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've even seen the sons of Anakim there. In chapter 2, then in verse 10 of Deuteronomy, he speaks, and says, The Emim had dwelt in this specific place in times past, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. The next verse. And they were regarded as giants, like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Amim. In chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, what we realize is that God had shown them, when they were afraid of these people, they looked and they saw across the water, across the Jordan, and they saw the people in the promised land, and what they saw is, these guys are gigantic! I don't want to fight that guy! How in the world am I going to fight that guy? I'm like a grasshopper in his sight. And, he goes, and what's even worse than that is, those guys are like... The Anakim. The Anakim, in essence, was the industry standard giant. They were like, if you would think of a giant, you'd say, well, compare him to an Anakim. Anakim's a big the big guy. So understand what God did. And he says, well, then let's walk some places for a moment. Since says, you're not going to go here. And he walks them through and he shows them the Moabites and he shows them the... um. And the, 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 the Esauites as well. And what he does with each of these groups, the Edomites, is he says, you know, the people that lived there before were as big as the Edomites. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, were as big as the Anakim. But I took them out because I promised them the land and I gave it to them. Then what God says is, remember all the other giants? I took those down before. So why are you scared of this one? You know, isn't it easy to remember? I bet you could remember at least three good tragedies by date. When I lost this person, when this horrible thing happened, when this horrible thing happened. And some people even have the anniversaries of those things. And and I'm not saying that that's bad. I mean, if it's a way to cope and bring it to the Lord, bring it to the Lord. The question is, how many of us have dates and anniversaries for amazing things that God's done? For the times when he slayed the giants? Can any of us even remember the day that we got saved? Some of us can. Some of us can't. How about the time when you were an alcoholic and you never you stopped drinking? Or you were smoking and you never thought you'd be set free of it In the day that you stopped, can you remember that day? Can you celebrate that day? The day when you actually realized that you were going to be pure from this point on and you meant it and it actually, it was for real? I mean, isn't it amazing how quickly we can gravitate to these moments we feel our great defeat or great disappointment or pain in our life? But we can't remember the moments the giants fell? And what God did is he says, well, let me walk you through the other giants I've already taken down. Because if I can walk you through those, maybe you'd recognize the next giant's no threat to me either. There's the point. And I look at this and I realize that when, when what we read is Joshua came in and he went, I mean, this is our Joshua here. He went in after the Anakim and he took them all down. He said, I don't care how big you are. You're not as big as my God. You don't frighten me. I already have a history of fallen giants under my king. And if I have a history of fallen giants, what in the world's going to make me think you're going to be any different? What makes you bigger than any of the giants I've fought up to this point? I love that about Joshua. I just don't like the fact that I'm not like him in this area. You know, when God fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, which one did he feed first? Does anyone know? The 5,000. You would have thought if he fed the four thousand first, first, then when they get to the 5,000, they're like, well, there's more people. This is really, you know, how are we going to do this? But when he fed the 5,000 first and the 4,000 come, shouldn't you think this should be easy? He's already done worse. He's already done greater than this. How can I make it to every 4,000? He's already taking care of five. And you know what that's like. You want an impossible bill that God paid? And God said he's going to take care of it. And then another one comes. It's half that, but you're still freaking out just as much. I recognize that. That's our visa issue. And whatever that is, emotionally, interpersonally, you know, so, you know, sort of, you know, circumstantially, whatever that is. Beloved, please hear me. God is our giant faller. He knows how to fall every giant. And if we were honest with ourselves, we have a pile of, a mountain of fallen giants behind us. Joshua just knew that enough to step forward. He was ready to fight the first time 40 years ago. He was one of the spies that said, "Let's take these guys on." But he said they left none of them except for a couple places, and that leads to concern. Gaza, like Gaza today, Gath and Ashtad. Why is that important? Because Gath will have another Anakim, another son of Anakim, another giant. We know him because he's going to be about 10 and a half feet tall. He's going to be, if you think about it, at least three and a half meters tall. And we know him as Goliath. The giant from Gath. Who has some brothers, by the way, who also have to fall. So it tells us, by the way, that that's a sign of things to come. Which tells me, even if all the giants had been fallen in front of me, there will still be others so that I can be reminded next year that God still drops giants. Not just the ones of my past. He will drop every giant that stands against him. And if I walk with him, then I should never worry. So let me ask you, as we're about to pray now, what giants are in your life right now? Things that you're like, I'll never get past this. This will always own me. This will always dominate me. Let me ask you, who's bigger? Maybe tonight the Lord wants to set you free from that. Drop that giant in front of you. Why not? Why wouldn't he? Last verse says, Then Joshua did. He took the whole land according to to all that the Lord had said to Moses. Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions by the tribes. And the Lord, then says, then the land rested from war. As we go to prayer, hear me. Tonight, I want to challenge you with this. Consecrate. Set yourself unto the Lord in every area. God, am I consecrating? my single life or my married life? Am I consecrating my values? Am I consecrating my future? Am I consecrating my dreams and ambitions? Am I consecrating where I see myself? Am I consecrating these things? Where it's like, Lord, whatever the case is, it's your job to make this happen. I'm not going to wait for you like I have a plan waiting for you to fill it in. I'm going to wait on you. And I'm going to wait for you to do, move where you want. And I'm just going to hold on to you. And then as I seek to say, Lord, you have all of my heart, then I want to seek him. All right, Lord. Well, then, what do you want me to do? And what happens if you ask God, what do I do? And you hear nothing. Could that be your answer? What do I do, God? What do I do? What do I do? Why am I not hearing God? What are you hearing from God? Nothing. Maybe he did answer. What do I do? The answer is nothing. We don't like that, right? We'd rather God just say, be still. But what happens if he doesn't say anything? Then you keep asking him and then you spend more time with him. He gets what he wants. God, what do I do? He knows how to tell you to do what you need to do. But if you keep asking him, you'll never be late. What do I do? And if you don't speak, I'm going to stay right here. And when you speak, I want to be ready to say, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. How amazing is that? God says, not one of these, wait a minute, not one of these are going to stand before you in a a day. So I guess it didn't matter how tall they were, did it? It didn't matter how big. It didn't matter how scary, how mighty, how crazy, how possessed they might have looked, how much they looked like they were from Camden or Tottenham Hale, how much they looked like a policeman or how much they looked like a professional wrestler, how much they looked like a rugby player or an American football player. It didn't matter. If he said not one of them is going to stand... We've gotten victory over them all. Then I wouldn't care how big the thing is. It's going to fall. Right? And he's like, imagine at that point, the bigger the thing in front of me, the more excited I get. Because I'm like, oh man, you're going down too. You know, I would, get, I would be watching 24 hours. right? Because he says they're not going to stand in 24. So I'm like looking. I'm like, wow, 18 hours and you show up. You're going down. You know what Scripture says about us? We're more than a conqueror. The giants are going to fall, beloved. Not just before you, before our king. We just get to be with him so we can enjoy. So as we seek him, if he says nothing about what you're to do, then do that. Stay with him. Plant yourself in the house of the Lord and watch what he does. But when he does make clear, then initiate. That's probably why he doesn't say it too soon. Because for some of us, if he said it early, we'd do it early. Have you learned he's never early? But have you learned he's never late? Well, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of your word here. I thank you for Joshua's example. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've walked us through this, this book so far. We're now basically halfway through the book. And Lord, I look at this and I realize as we prepare ultimately to make our way into Judges, And we walk into a place where it's mayhem and craziness and people have to be raised up that you will raise up for that purpose. God, I pray today that you would do a magnificent work in us here and now, Lord. For those things, Lord, we feel like we'll always be a sucker to, we'll always be a midget to, we'll always be so small in compared to. And I don't mean that in any derogatory manner, but rather the elevating of this problem. This thing that seems so huge to us. That we've now made it so big, we've made you small. Change that now, God, I pray. Revolutionize our hearts. For Lord, no greater enemy could there be than death. And Lord, you went and you took on our sin, our guilt, and you took it to the death. But even death could not hold you. And if the giant of sin could not stop you, if the giant of filth and guilt could not hold you down or hold you captive, if death itself could not hold you, whom shall I fear? If you are for me, who or what could stand against me? And I pray tonight, Lord, as we are here in this room reconciling Your death and resurrection, We openly declare Your death for our sins. We openly acknowledge our need for a Savior. We openly appreciate the price You paid on the cross. We openly realize that Your burial showed that our sins were paid for in full and left to rot. But as You resurrected, You offer us new life that abundant life You promised us in John 10.10. And I pray tonight we would realize that You have that bespoke to each of us. And in having it to each of us, Lord, tonight here in this room as we confess You, Jesus, not just as our Savior, but as our Lord, take Your proper throne. And as You take the throne of our lives, drop the giants in front of us. And may we have the privilege of watching them fall. Even this week, Even this month, as we now move towards October, Lord, drop the giants. May October be the giant dropping month, where what we walk when we walk into November, we walk into it with a greater sense of victory and dates to acknowledge for the rest of our lives, to look back and say, "Oh, I remember October. On this day, you dropped this, and on this day, you dropped that." Well, do that, Lord. I pray. As we commit this to you again. We thank You for being the giant dropping God. In Jesus' name, Amen.